Well, as we continue on through the book of Isaiah, we are this week coming to chapter 56 of Isaiah. However, as I was studying chapter 56, I realized that chapters 56 through 59 really kind of all go together. They're all covering the same themes, and yet it's also so rich and there's so much there. I didn't want to do 56 to 59 in just one message. And so what we're going to do this week and the next two weeks is we're going to have three messages on Isaiah chapters 56 to 59, and we're going to look at the three primary themes of those chapters. And so the first theme that we're going to look at, the theme that we'll look at this morning, is the exceeding sinfulness of man, the exceeding sinfulness of man. But then next week in these same chapters, we're also going to see the exceeding grace of God. And then finally, we're going to see the necessity for man to respond to God. So again, this morning, I'm going to take the first of these themes, but I think before we can understand the grace of God, we truly have to understand just how wretched our sin is. Um, And so those are the sections from Isaiah that we're going to be reading this morning. And so Moira will come up for us in just a moment and read Isaiah 58, 1 and 2. Then Joshua will come up and read Isaiah 59, 2 to 8. And Pat will come up and read Isaiah 59, 9 to the first half of verse 13. And again, all of these texts are God calling out the sin of Israel uh, and the sin of the nations to some extent even. And then finally, we're going to see the same theme of the, the sinfulness of man. We're going to see the same thing theme coming through clearly in the New Testament. Ryan will come and read for us from Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, where we see how understanding the wretchedness of our sin is just a very first step, a very critical piece of coming to know Jesus Christ. And so, Moira, if you want to come up now to begin our reading with Isaiah 58, 1 and 2. Isaiah 58, 1 and 2. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sin. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. Isaiah 59, starting in 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Isaiah 59, 9-13. Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness 
and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God has called all of humanity, and he has called his people in particular to be a people of righteousness and justice. Those are the very first words that we see in Isaiah chapter 56. It says, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. This is in some ways the most basic and foundational command of God. And the reason why this is commanded to us is because God created us to be radiant and to be glorious. Indeed, we see at the end of Revelation that God actually created human beings. He created mankind to be rulers of the earth in the age to come. You see, when God made Adam in the garden, the first man, he was pristine and he ruled over creation. He named the animals. He cultivated the garden and expanded it. He walked with God. He was God's local governor over creation. But there was one thing that Adam lacked if he was to truly rule creation as God had designed. He lacked knowledge of good and evil. It's not that he was wicked, he was just innocent. He didn't know the difference between the two. He was still like a young child, like a baby. He was untrained. God, in his wisdom, wanted Adam to wait, to attain that knowledge of good and evil. And so there was a tree that God put in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but God wanted Adam to wait to eat from that tree. Now all of us ultimately have this same calling that Adam had, to be local governors over God's creation. God is the one who is sovereign over all. We are created in God's image, and so we are created to have dominion over creation, just as God has ultimate dominion over creation. And all of us, in order to fulfill that calling, need to know the difference between good and evil. Now, Adam foolishly and proudly thrust this knowledge upon mankind and realized only afterwards that he should have waited for God's timing, for God's provision. Because seizing the fruit before it was time, seizing this knowledge before it was time, only gave him knowledge of his guilt. But what Adam took by force, the Lord now desires to give us by grace. As Solomon prayed when he became king over Israel, he said, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. 
You see, Solomon understood that he needed to distinguish between good and evil if he was to be a good ruler, the kind of ruler that God wanted him to be. And so what I want to try and help us do this morning is to do just that, to distinguish between good and evil. Now, this may sound very simple on the surface, but Scripture actually says it is quite difficult. Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers and discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Do you hear how it says that we need our discernment trained by constant practice if we are going to be able to distinguish good and evil? It takes constant practice, constant vigilance to distinguish these things. It's because our hearts are so easily self-justifying, self-excusing, creating our own version of what is right and wrong instead of just looking to the God of the universe and saying, Lord, you tell us what is right and what is wrong. We constantly want to invent our own definitions of good and evil, and we don't want to turn to the only one infallible source the Word of God, for knowing the difference between the two. And yet, beloved, when we can distinguish between good and evil, when we can see clearly from God's Word what is right and what is wrong, what is desirable and what is wretched, when we can see the difference between these things, we are on our way to reacquiring that glory that Adam lost. Again, beloved, our destiny is to rule along with Christ over the new heavens and new earth in the age to come. And if we are to reign in that age to come, then we must be able to distinguish between good and evil. This is the most fundamental responsibility of a king. And so as we grow in distinguishing between good and evil, we are growing in wisdom and we are growing in our ability to be kings and queens over the new creation. This is why God says, even in our passage this morning, Isaiah 58, verses 8 to 12, that when we truly come to understand righteousness, when we truly come to understand what is good and what is evil, Beginning in 58.8, it says, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. And then he goes on to say, Then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire and scorch places and make your bones strong. And ye shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Do you see how God has given us this kingly task to rebuild the ruined walls that our light would shine upon this earth, but we can only do that, beloved, insofar as we can distinguish between good and evil. And insofar as we can live in the good, live in the righteous, and reject and oppose that which is evil. Now, I begin this way because I so desperately want you to be able to see how important this is. 
How important it is for us as believers to be able to distinguish good and evil, to understand what God's Word says is good and what God's Word says is evil. And of course, even more than simply distinguishing between these two, we have to actually live out the good and reject the evil. And this is not a small thing. It is not even just something of earthly consequence, like it will be brought before the judge when we die. No, it is knowledge that we will need for all of eternity. And so even if you don't think you need to know this today, consider this a preparation for your eternal role as a ruler at the right hand of Jesus Christ. The four chapters that we are looking at now are essentially a call for Israel and for all peoples to reject evil and to embrace the good. Of course, this passage also does make it clear that mere knowledge is not enough. The conclusion of this passage is that no one does good and that therefore God has come to accomplish salvation for himself. And so especially if you are an unbeliever and you are here this morning, I want you to understand that I am not merely teaching a lesson on morality. Okay, morality is important because God loves good and he hates evil. But have you ever noticed how even when you know what is good, even when you know what is ought to do, oftentimes you still cannot do it? And so even though I want to teach us this morning on how to distinguish between good and evil, I also want to be loud and clear that mere knowledge is not enough. And that if we want to actually live in this righteousness, the only way to live in this righteousness is to come to Jesus Christ by faith, who died to all the sin and the evil that we could ever commit, and he rose to newness of life, to all the goodness and righteousness that we could ever perform, And so as we are united to Christ by faith, only then are we able to abandon the evil and to embrace the good. And so that is the the ultimate message of our passage this morning. But again, if we are going to even get to that place where we embrace Jesus Christ as our saving hope, as the one who can help us to do good, we must first recognize the difference between good and evil. And so the structure of our passage this morning, these four chapters, is to alternate between promise and warning, promise and warning, good and evil, good and evil. And this transition happens three different times. There are three sections that describe the sinfulness of people, and there are four sections in this passage that describe the promise and the goodness of God. The three passages that describe the sinfulness of people mainly follow the following trajectory. First, it describes for us what individual evil looks like, what our personal sinfulness looks like. From there, it goes on to describe what religious evil looks like. And then finally, it goes on to describe what national evil looks like. So in my message this morning, I'm going to follow that same outline. First, I want to look at personal evil, and then I'm going to look at religious evil, and then finally, I will look at national evil. So first, personal evil. Now personal evil is mainly covered in the verses of uh, 56 verse 9 to 57 verse 13. And personal evil, as spoken of in this passage, comes down to two main things. The first thing that it comes down to is giving in to your appetites. 
And the second thing that it comes down to is idolatry. So first, giving in to our appetite. So if you'll keep your Bibles open, Isaiah 56, verses 9 to 12. It says, All you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, they are all without knowledge, they are all silent dogs, they cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite, they never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Do you see all the ways that the Israelite people here are declared to be a people who are simply following their appetite? It begins with the very first claim here in verse 9, all you beasts of the field come to devour. What is the significance of calling the people beasts? Well, a beast is a creature who is simply guided by its appetites. It cannot use its mind. It cannot use its reasoning in order to curb its appetites, in order to guide its path in any way. No, it simply follows its hunger or its tiredness. And so in that way, we as people individually can be just like beasts. We just follow our appetites wherever they go instead of being guided by what is right or wrong, being guided by our knowledge. We are instead guided by our appetites. In verse 10, it says that they love to rest and to slumber. Working hard is uncomfortable. And if you're following your appetites, you don't like to be uncomfortable. And so they opt for sleep instead. They opt for a lifestyle that's full of rest and that's easy. And so they fall into wickedness in that way as well. Verse 11 is the plain declaration that they have a mighty appetite, that they never have enough. And this is one of the amazing things about our appetites is that you would think that when we have an appetite and we engage in trying to satisfy that appetite, that suddenly we would be happy again, that we would be over it. But no, the way our appetites work is always when we indulge the appetite, it just seems to grow more and more, and we never find ourselves satisfied. And then in verse 12, they say, come, let me get wine. And so they like to get drunk because Being drunk feels good because you don't forget the problems of this world. You don't forget your aches and pains. And so they just go along in their lives, just following their appetite in any way. Beloved, do you ever find yourself just following along with your appetite in an unthinking way? Not letting your life be governed by the Word of God, by what God says is right and wrong, and instead just letting your life Be governed by what feels good, by what's comfortable to you in the moment. Hating discomfort and loving what is easy. Beloved, if that's you at all, then you have fallen into the path of evil, as described in these verses. But the second path of personal evil is the path of idolatry. And that's 57 verses 1 to 13. I'm just going to read verses 4 to 10 right now. The Lord says, Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit, you who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? 
On a high and lofty mountain, you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their beds. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength. So you were not faint. Do you hear how Isaiah is describing the many acts of service to idols that these people are engaging in? They engage in ritual prostitution under the trees in verse 11. In the second half of verse 11, they even kill their children in the valleys. And then in verse 7, it goes on to talk about offering sacrifices on the mountains. And all of these things are driven by the idolatry of their hearts. And this evil is a little different from the evil of following our appetites, precisely because these people are willing to do very difficult things, whereas following your appetites is by definition always an easy thing to do. But these people are willing to do difficult things for their gods because they believe in these gods, and so they want to please them in every way. That's why in verse 10 it says, you were wearied with the length of your way. So they knew that these idols were draining them dry. And yet because they clung to these idols, because they loved these idols, they kept on doing these acts of wickedness. Now I know that our idols today may not seem quite as clear and obvious as the idols of the ancient Near East. Not many people today will set up an image and bow down to it and make sacrifices to it. But beloved, don't be mistaken, idolatry of the heart is no less prevalent today than it ever was in human history, even going back to thousands and thousands of years ago. There are still gods that people adopt in their hearts, that call people to serve them. Gods like money, or sex, or reputation, or success— And these idols may very well be crushing people, but people keep fighting to serve these idols precisely because they believe that these idols are their gods. It is just as irrational as it has ever been. And so one of the clearest ways, I think, that we can see when we are indeed pursuing idolatry, pursuing idols, is when we suddenly find ourselves engaged in some kind of activity that is harmful for us, but we find ourselves seemingly unable to pull away from. What is it that keeps you up late at night so that you don't get enough sleep? What is it that absorbs your every free moment so that you don't have any margin? What is it that takes you away from your own wife and family so that your relationship with them suffers? Whenever you are failing in these ways, beloved, you can be sure that there is an idol at work under the surface. You're not serving the true God that calls you to love what is right, that calls you to love your family and to serve God alone. No, you are serving something of your own imagination. You are serving an idol. And beloved, all of us have hidden idols of our heart that perhaps we cannot perceive. And these idols call to us day after day to do evil things. And so we must beware of the power of idolatry. And so, beloved, do you see any ways that you are slipping into these destructive patterns, seemingly unable to pull yourself out? 
Take a moment and consider what idol is at work in your heart? What are you serving that is not the true and living God? So this is how Isaiah describes personal evil for us. But after personal evil, Isaiah does not leave it there. He recognizes that there are higher and bigger forms of evil than simply our own individual acts of disobedience. And so the next type of evil that Isaiah moves on to is what I'm going to call religious evil. This is when people take religion, people like those gathered here in this church, and instead of using religion, using church to honor God and glorify Him, we instead twist it to our own evil purposes. And so when we go to Isaiah 58, looking at verses 1 to 5, we see how the people of Israel were indeed serving God in a religious way. It says, Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And so you can hear in all of these words the religious duties that the people of Israel are performing in order to draw near to God. And God is willing to confess. He's willing to say, yeah, it looks like they're seeking me daily. It looks like they're looking to me for right judgment and for wisdom. In verse 3, we even see that they're fasting, right? Kind of the most extreme religious practice there is, right? They're even foregoing food to say, God, this is how much we want to serve you. And so they are indeed engaging in a lot of religious activities. But notice what God says about their fast. Starting in the second half of verse 3 of Isaiah 58. It says, Behold, In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable? to the Lord. See, God is preparing to tell them that they have totally lost the plot. They have totally lost what God is after in their fasting, in their religiosity. What is it that God actually wants? This is what he goes on to explain, beginning in verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And so we see in this way God correcting the religion or the supposed religion of the Israelite people. The fast that the Israelite people were performing was not the fast that God desired. You see, they were keeping this outward form of religious ritual, but they had lost its meaning. They were focused so much on the religious aspects of things that they had forgotten what religion is for in the first place. 
Beloved, do you know what religion is for? Do you know what Christianity is for? It's not so that we can have nice churches and good social connections. It's not so that we can have good theology and an accurate worldview. It's not even just to appease our consciences so that we feel good in the presence of God. Beloved, none of these things are the purpose of religion. None of these things are why God sent Jesus Christ to the earth in order that we might be saved. Listen to these words from Romans 16, verses 25 and 26. The Apostle Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God. So according to all these things that God has done, sending Jesus Christ, the gospel, giving his prophetic word, giving his commands, all of these things, what are they for? The closing line says, to bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith. That's why God sent Jesus Christ. That's why God has established a church. That's why God gives us his word. It isn't just so we can fill our heads with knowledge. It isn't just so we can feel good. It isn't just so we can know that we are better than other people. It's so that we can actually perform the obedience of faith. So that we can live righteous lives, loving God and serving others. Beloved, it is all too easy for us to get stuck in the same problem that the Israelites were stuck in. For so many years of my Christian life, I measured how good I was as a Christian on the basis of how much I read my Bible, or on the basis of how much I prayed, or on the basis of had I lusted in my heart the last night, Or had I gotten angry in my heart at someone? And if I hadn't done those things, if I was, you know, pure on the inside, and if I was reading my Bible, then I thought, oh, well, I'm good. I'm I'm doing what the Lord wants. I'm in the clear. But beloved, if I'm only ever concerned for my private morality, for my private righteousness, I am missing the whole point of what Jesus came to do. The question is not, am I pure in some separate kind of way from just cutting myself off from other people and making sure I'm clean? No, the question is, am I caring for the poor? Do I care about orphans or the fatherless? Do I have compassion on the mentally ill? Do I want to help the homeless? Do I care about the flourishing of people besides my own family? These are the things that Christ truly wants to accomplish, and these are the ways in which we should be measuring our faithfulness to God. You must measure with the standard that God has, not by the standard that we want to use. James 1.27 is often quoted, but what he says there is precisely what Isaiah is saying here. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Beloved, it is evil for us to only get worked up about our own ritual or religious purity and to not actually seek the good of our neighbor. 
This is one of the best areas for me personally to be reminded of my sinfulness before God and how much I still have to grow. Whenever I think, I think I'm doing pretty good at this Christianity thing. I think I'm doing pretty good at following Jesus. You know, God must be really proud of me and what a good person I am now. I just think for a moment of how Jesus cared for the poor, of how Jesus cared for the widows, of how Jesus cared for the outcasts. And then I think, when is the last time I went out of my way to make sure that people in my city here had food and shelter? When is the last time that I really went out of my way to care for someone who is poor? Is that something that I really care about? Beloved, we are called to be like Jesus Christ. If we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, and if Jesus Christ himself was someone who was remarkable for how he loved the poor and the outcast and the oppressed, then how can we not do the same? Jesus was not just a private holy man who was very pure and very good. No, he was a positively loving man who wherever he went was doing good to others. And this type of evil where we twist the purposes of religion is especially terrible because it takes a good thing, religion that God has delivered to us in his word, and it turns it into a vehicle of exclusion and self-centeredness. The people that are supposed to be making God look glorious suddenly seem to make God look like he only cares about each person being morally clean. But the message is that if you are ritually clean, but you are disengaged from the needs of the world, then you are not in a righteous place. You are in an evil place. And so in this way, even our religion, even our attempts to worship God can be turned to evil. And then finally, we have the reality of national evil that Isaiah deals with. National evil. Isaiah turns to the topic of national evil when he comes to chapter 59. These words are especially covered in uh, verses 2 to the first half of verse 15. And he talks about the sins of Israel as a nation. In verses 3 and 7, he says that they are a nation that likes bloodshed. In verse 3, he says they are a nation of lies. In verse 4, he says they're a nation that has frivolous and misleading lawsuits against one another. In 6 and 8, he says they're a nation of violence. And again in verse 8, he says they are a nation that rejects justice. And so the point that Isaiah is making, and the point that we ourselves must understand today, that even if the nation is engaging in all of these practices, even if these practices are very common among the people of Israel, that does not change their evil. Even if bringing false lawsuits is a very popular way of making money, that does not make it right. Even if many people are rejecting justice, that does not change what justice is. Good and evil do not change on the basis of who is practicing what, or how famous they are, or how well liked they are, or any of those things. Good and evil is established by the very character of God, and therefore it will not change because God can never change. Beloved, do you see things in our society that people tend to overlook and not think much about, but they're actually terribly wrong? I see things like that everywhere. And I'm not talking about 
Republican or Democrat issues. I'm talking about issues of right and wrong. Now, sometimes Democrats line up more with what is right. Sometimes Republicans do. But there are many things, beloved, many more things, aside from political issues that are wrong in our culture today, that neither party mentions much or pays much attention to. And so are we just going to be a people that follow a political party and we don't actually follow God's definition of good and evil? We are not called to join with the political parties. We are called to be prophetic voices speaking justice and righteousness into a system that does not know its head from its tail. If you turn on the news and you see what the news is reporting, they are not going to tell you what is good and what is evil. They're just going to tell you what everybody's paying attention to at this very moment. And therefore, we must be a people that look at the world on the basis of what God says is right and wrong and not on the basis of what the media is saying or what the politicians are saying. We have a different standard and we abide by that standard. So those are the three categories of evil that Isaiah covers in these chapters. And so in the close of this message, I simply want to address what we must do and how we can do it. What, we must, what must we do with regard to each of these evils? So going back to the beginning, to personal evil, what if we are people who are prone to follow our appetites? What does righteousness look like instead of following our appetites? Well, Scripture calls us to lives of discipline. 1 Corinthians 9.27, the Apostle Paul says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And so we understand that many times we will be tempted to do something that is not good for our bodies, that is not good for our souls. And in those moments, we know that it will be hard to resist that temptation. And yet we discipline our bodies. We tell our bodies that our bodies, our appetites are not in control, that God is in control, that we are allowing the Holy Spirit to be in control of us rather than our appetites. And in that way, we live lives of discipline before God. What about with regards to idolatry? With regards to idolatry, Scripture is very clear. We must turn to God alone and forsake all other gods. Jesus himself says in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or take James 4, 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Beloved, we cannot compromise with idolatry. We cannot say, well, I'm going to serve God 70% of the time, but, you know, the other 30% of the time is really for me or for these other things that I really like. We cannot serve two masters, beloved. It is 100% and 0%, either toward God or toward our idols. And, beloved, the only way to uncover the idols in our heart is through drawing near to God and his word and then being in the fellowship of a church where other people know you, where they can see your life and where they want to speak to you about problems that they see and idols that you may have. You're never going to be able to discern your idols on your own, just looking introspectively all the time. 
You need to have relationships with people where you say, hey, I am willing to hear your input into my life. I want to know if I'm going off course in any way. And so in that way, we as a church body can encourage one another to fight all forms of idolatry, to give up all that is damaging to ourselves and to one another and come into a right relationship with God. What about religious evil? How do we fight religious evil? Well, we must put away all of our private, easy definitions of goodness, and we must realize that God is more concerned with our love for others than he is concerned with our religious purity. Matthew 22, 37 to 39 could not be more clear on this point. When someone asks Jesus, what are the two greatest commandments? Jesus replies, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Beloved, that is to be our standard for righteousness. Not just how good am I doing or how good am I upholding certain disciplines that I think I need to be doing. Beloved, I would even go so far as to contend that if you think you are really doing well spiritually, if you kind of think you have arrived, then your definition of righteousness simply is not high enough. It is not God's definition. We all in this room, beloved, have a long way to go until we are close to the compassion and love for others that Jesus himself had. So let's measure our spirituality. Let's measure our lives more by our love for God and our love for others than we do by private disciplines or attendance at church or service in the church or any other type of spiritual activity that we may want to pat ourselves on the back for. The question is, do you love? And then finally, national evil. What are we called to do as a Christian people to combat national evil? Well, right here in Isaiah, it seems that the answer he gives is that what we are called to do is we are called to simply proclaim the truth. So Isaiah 59, verses 14 and 15, where Isaiah says, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Now, why has that happened? He says, For truth has stumbled in the public squares. And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. And so, what we are called to do as God's people is we are called to bring truth to the public square. We are called to be like John the Baptist, those voices in the wilderness, that even though the culture maybe doesn't want to hear us about what is good and what is evil, we nevertheless don't change our message based on what the culture wants to hear. We declare good and evil as God himself has defined it. And we are also not called as Christians, as a church, to wield government power. Even if we as as Christians could form some Christian political party, we should not do this. But what we should do is we should proclaim truth to our society, truth to our government. If it's someone as strong and powerful as the president, We should stand on the basis of God's authority and declare to the president what is true. Or if it's just some state or local representative, we do not shy away from proclaiming the truth to them either. If we as believers in God, as those who love God's word, are not willing to proclaim the truth, then nobody will, beloved. And so we must be faithful and diligent in our proclamation of the truth. 
And again, if we find that that proclamation is exactly lining up with the platform of either political party, then we should also be very sure that we are not actually proclaiming good and evil as God sees it. And so we stand on the basis of God's word and we proclaim truth to our culture. Now again, the purpose of all of this has been to help us to see the evil in ourselves, the evil in our religion, and the evil in our nation, to be prepared to how to respond to it. But if this stirs up your pride, if this makes you think, oh, now I have marching orders, now I know what I need to do, I just need to roll up my sleeves and get it done, well, then your response to these words is very wrong. Our passage summarizes the condition of mankind. In Isaiah 59, verses 9 to 13, it says, Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears, we moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation. But it is far from us, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart, lying words. Beloved, that is all we are capable of doing apart from God. If you think you can go out and discern good and evil on your own just by thinking really hard and growing in wisdom, you cannot do it on your own. If you think you can go out and love your neighbor the way you should just by trying really hard to love your neighbor, you cannot love your neighbor as you should. And so, beloved, the very first step we must take is to fall before God in humility, just as these verses saying, saying, Lord, we in our own strength cannot do justice, cannot do righteousness. We in our own wisdom cannot discern between good and evil. We are utterly lost. But when we've come to that point, beloved, when we have come to that point where we recognize that we cannot do it on our own in any way, shape, or form, then we have an invitation from the Lord of the universe to come to him by faith alone, admitting that we are not good in and of ourselves, but instead admitting by faith that God alone is righteous, that God alone is wise, God alone can distinguish good and evil, and that we need him. And the good news, beloved, is if we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, then we truly will be empowered to distinguish between good and evil and to live in righteousness. Hear these words of Romans 8, 3 and 4. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Beloved, part of the glorious news of salvation is this deposit of the Holy Spirit that is given to us by which we suddenly have eyes to see what is good and what is evil and we suddenly have the power to live it out because we are not living according to our own strength. We are not living according to our own wisdom, according to a law of our own creation, but we are living by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. When God killed his son, he killed sin in you. And when God rose Jesus from the dead, he gave you resurrection power to be victorious over your sin. And so, beloved, turn to Jesus Christ this morning. Admit that you are unrighteous in every way. Admit that you cannot even tell the difference between good and evil on your own. Ask for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Ask the Lord for wisdom to discern between good and evil. And if you will humbly ask in that way, if you will admit that you have no hope in your own strength, but God's power must work in you, then, beloved, be assured that God delights to answer that request and draw near to you, and guide your every step. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. We're going to pray in the following way. We'll give a minute or two to respond to this message in prayer. And then after that, I'll transition to the prayer to intercede for the needs of the world around us. And so if you would, let's go to the Lord in prayer with me now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have given us your word and you have given us your Son so that we can see clearly what is good and what is evil. And not only that, that we can also choose what is good and reject what is evil. And so, Lord, I pray that you will indeed open our eyes. I pray for any of us here, especially who are wandering right now in sins that we cannot even discern, in evil that we have not even seen, in idols of our heart that have not yet been uncovered, in religious standards that are not truly your standards. I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see. Lord, so that we truly can repent of all wickedness, of all evil, of all unrighteousness, and turn to you in faith. Lord, would you hear our prayers now?